well, um, today's going to be a fun day. I, I kind of thought it was humorous that last week after the service, somebody said, okay, that, w- that was good, but, uh, but next week, I'm excited to see how you handle that text, uh, because there's a lot of genealogy in today's text, um, which, which the reason I bring that up is because I think it's funny, because it winds up being that the texts I think are going to be the hardest to preach wind up being some of my favorites. So I'm excited for today's. Would you all stand with me one more time? I know you've been up and down, but would you stand with me? Let's go ahead and read God's word. And just so you know, I am not going to read straight through this chapter because there's a lot of names I can't pronounce. So instead, I'll try to give you a heads up where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1 today. If I can get on the right page, I'll read it. Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, says, When the walls had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem, along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. I said to them, Do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot, and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. At this point, Nehemiah goes through this long list of names. If you would jump with me over to verse 61. Yeah, I know that's cheating, but I'm going to do it anyway. Jump with me to verse 61. It says, The following are those who came from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Aden, and Immer, but were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelite. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nakoda's descendants, 642. And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and who bore their name. These searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who can consult the Urim and the Thummim. Thumim. Um, the, whole, the whole combined assembly numbered, not including, or numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants, as well as their 245 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the family heads contributed, contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minas to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers... Uh, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. I didn't read the names, and I still got tongue-tied. Oh, goodness. Okay. Chapter 7, Nehemiah. We are at the halfway point, halfway point through Nehemiah here. Um, And it's interesting because today, today there's a shift There's a shift in the text. Up until this point, 
Up until this point, we have, been, we have been watching Nehemiah, and they've been very focused on building the wall, building the walls around Jerusalem, right? That's the whole point up to, this, up to this time. So let's go back, and let's just look at what's happened. So in chapter 1, we find this guy, Nehemiah, living in, in the Persian capital of Susa. He's not even anywhere near Jerusalem. That's probably the, one of the last things on his mind at this point, living here in Susa, the capital city. He's got this cushy job as the king's wine taster, so he's just kicked back, relaxing, making a good living, doing his thing. When his brother shows up, and his brother shows up and brings this report of Jerusalem in its sad state. It says that the people there are living in disgrace, they're living in shame, and, and something needs to change. And God breaks Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah then starts thinking about what to do. When he's given the opportunity, he brings it up to the king. And he says, look, Jerusalem's in disgrace. And these are my people, and I want to do something about it. And he says, please send me. So he has the opportunity, and he goes back, and he investigates all the damage in Jerusalem. and starts looking at what's going on here. And keep in mind, Jerusalem has been inhabited for decades now by the Israelite people. But they've been completely immobilized by fear and guilt and shame, and they haven't been able to get up to lift a finger to rebuild the walls. So they just continue to live in their shame. There's nothing that they feel like they can do about it. So Nehemiah comes back, and he investigates all the damage, and he says, you know what? It's time we do something about this. Let's rise up and build. So they all rally behind him. They come together. And it's easy from there, right? Of course not, it's not easy from there. They run into obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. First, they're being attacked from the outside. Then, they wind up with problems inside. And then, these outside attackers, they come again. They just can't seem to get past the problems. But, in 52 days, in 52 days of work, they completed the wall. They built it. They did something that this little band of Israelites could not have done on their own. They accomplished an incredible work because God gave them the strength to do it. And up until this point, that's been the focus of the text. It's all about building this wall. How can we build this wall? And I told you, it's important because in a lot of ways, if you remember back several weeks, we talked about how, how the walls around a city, kind of around Jerusalem, represented a broken relationship with God because their walls were broken down. So, of course, building this wall back up was important. But today we see a shift. Today's text is really, it's largely about preparing for chapter 8, so I'm looking forward to next week also. But today's text is preparing the people for chapter 8. All right? But this shift happens where we go from focusing on building the walls to now we're going to see that Nehemiah is building people. We're not content just building the walls up. Now he's focused very deliberately on people. That's how it starts, right? Verse 1 says, When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed. He says, that work is finished. It's over. It's done. Now something else is going to start. And of course there's going to be challenges. We talked last week about how the challenges didn't just go away overnight. There were continued, continued uh, conversations with people who had caused problems for Jerusalem. But today there's this shift This is what we're going to look at in the following weeks. It's this desire to build people. See, and as a church, we're not just in this to build a building, y'all. This is very appropriate, especially with what's going on around the building right now. Y'all know there's a construction project going on out front. Um, Our goal is not just to fix what needs to be fixed out front. Our goal is to build people. I say this just almost every week. Here at Christian Fellowship Church, we want to proclaim Christ. And we want to empower all people to become mature followers of Christ. We want to see people built up. 
We want to see them become more mature followers of Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I just want to make this as clear as I can. Okay? If you don't know Jesus, my intentions are very clear. I want you to know Jesus. If you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to be a follower of Christ. I'm not trying to hide that. That is my goal. I want you to know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, my goal is that you grow in maturity as you follow him. Uh, That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. We want to see people come to know Christ and then grow in maturity as they love and serve Christ. That's what we want. Okay? And the way we do that is through the word. And we see that that's what Nehemiah shifts his focus here. It's always been on building the wall, build the wall, build the wall. The wall's built, so now what does he do? We're going to build people. So, I think we can learn from Nehemiah here what we need to do if we are going to build people. Which is why this says four things we need to do as we prepare to build people. First, if we're going to do this, we need to establish godly leadership. We need to establish godly leadership. Okay, verse 1, like I said, it says, When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Then I put my brother Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. Nehemiah, rather than doing the work himself, he appoints people to the job. And we learn some things here. We learn some things here. Would it have been possible for Nehemiah to do all the work himself? Probably not. But just humor me for a minute, and let's say he could have. Let's say he could have done the job. Would that be wise? No, it certainly would not. It certainly would not. Instead, what he did was he started delegating. Now, was it possible that Hananiah and Hananiah, these two people that he left in charge of the city, would it be possible for them to make mistakes? Or do things different than Nehemiah would have? Yes, and yes. You know, that's one of the hard things about leadership. Whenever you start handing things over to other people, there's a chance that they will do it wrong or they will do it differently than you would have. It's really hard to let go of those things. But see, Nehemiah is identifying other leaders and understanding that he would make mistakes also. He's not a perfect man. But see, this is something important that we can learn as a church, is that we need to identify other leaders in the church and encourage them to step up and lead. See, every year, every year, most of you all know this, every year at Christian Fellowship, we have an annual congregational meeting where we vote on our elders, leaders in the church. We vote to approve those elders every year. So that means that every single member of Christian Fellowship Church needs to know how to identify good leaders. Every member needs to. Because you're going to be voting on whether or not you think this person is a godly leader, the leader that God wants in this church. Every one of you. But see, it goes further than that. Because leaders in the church, they need to be able to identify and encourage other leaders to step in and then delegate some of that work to them. See, Nehemiah doesn't just say, doesn't just say, you know what, go do whatever you want. Instead, he gives them guidance. He gives them some direction. He encourages them to step in and lead, but then he says, look, here's some good good guidelines for you to follow as you do the job that you're doing. See, um, one of the things we've been talking about as elders for the last few months, and I think I'm okay with telling people this, I don't see why I wouldn't be, but we've been talking about ways that we can increase involvement, um, the way, ways that we can get more of our church involved in the work of the church. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want you guys to be consumeristic Christians. That's one thing I don't want. Now, don't get me wrong, I want you to hear, I want you to be here, Um, I I want you to consume good Christian content. But let me make something clear. If your goal is to come and sit through a service and say, I've checked my box, 
that's not good enough. Like, I want you to be involved in the work. So one thing that we've been talking about as elders is how can we increase participation in the work of the church? So, our elders and our board, they simply cannot do all the work of the church. And in fact, just so that we're clear, I'm not saying that they do because they certainly do not do all the work of the church. Nor should they do all the work of the church. Instead, it is the responsibility of leaders within the church to identify and recruit other leaders to serve, just like Nehemiah does here. He identifies Hananiah and Hananiah to step in and serve alongside him. Second thing I want us to take away um, from, from this right here. First of all, he delegates some of the work. But the other thing is, look at the qualifications for this service. I think that this is equally as important. Okay? Nehemiah wasn't looking for the best businessmen to enlist. That's not what he looked at, is it? Now remember, let's just look at who these two guys were. Let's start with Hanani. You have to think all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, where we were introduced to this guy named Hanani. He was the one who first brought the report of Jerusalem's shame and disgrace back to Nehemiah. He came in and he had a broken heart for the city. He said, look, I love these people. I want to serve these people. But these people are living in shame and disgrace. He clearly had a heart for them. So that's the reason for him. But let's look at the reasoning for Hananiah's appointment. See, the last part of verse 2, it says, Along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. (laughs) You know what we know about Hananiah's military, business, financial, or intellectual qualifications? Nothing. Absolutely nothing about any of those qualifications. What do we know about Hananiah? He feared God more than most. That's all we know. I don't know that we need to know much more, do we? This man feared the Lord more than most. See, Nehemiah, as he was looking at what makes a good leader, the only criteria, it seems that he sets forward right here, the only criteria is does he fear God? Because if he fears God, he's not going to fear men. And if he fears God, he's going to serve well. He knew that that's what they needed. And now, this may seem obvious as a church, right? We're talking about building the church, building people in the church. Shouldn't this be obvious, right? We want leaders who fear God, we're the church. Shouldn't that be really obvious? Well, maybe it should be. But how often, how often do churches look for successful businessmen or bold communicators or a whole host of other things that may be good things, but we look at those as primary concerns instead of secondary concerns? See, Titus um, and Timothy, for that matter, whenever they start talking about qualifications of of leadership in the church, you can look at that list, and there are very few skill-based qualifications. Very few things that they say about a person needs to be able to do this. The vast majority of those qualifications have to do with a person's character. It's their character that makes the difference. And I think we can learn from that. Nehemiah is looking for somebody who fears God, not fearing men, not looking for a whole list of qualifications. He's not going, Hananiah, you know what, why don't you submit a resume so I can see your past work experience before we say, you know what, you're going to be in charge of the fortress. Instead, he says, look, this man fears the Lord. I know he's going to do the job he needs to do. Is he going to make mistakes? Of course he is. But he fears God and he's going to repent of those mistakes and he's going to follow after the Lord. That's the qualification he looks for. And then we see these leaders given the task of protecting the city, right? They were told when to open and close the gates. They were told to station guards, specifically citizens, which becomes important. If you remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the proper motivation for building. 
Talks about that? Yeah, well, it specifically says that he stations guards, citizens of the city, at their posts and at their homes. So we see these leaders providing guidance on how to do the work. Doesn't just say, go do whatever you want. He says, look, here's some good practical tips, and you need to step in, and you need to lead now. And we see them enlisting others to serve in the work. Now, all of this will take wisdom. And wisdom doesn't just happen. It takes time, and it takes patience, and it takes persistence. But that's what it requires as they enlist these things. I actually like the way Warren Wearsby addressed this. He said, gates and walls are only as good as the people who guard them. The gates and walls don't do much good if there's not the proper person there to guard them, right? The point is this. As we see a people built up, we need to establish godly leadership throughout the church. Not just like a top-down business model. We need throughout the church leaders all over the place. So we must, we must establish godly leadership. Second thing we find as we build people is that we must identify the body. We must identify the body. Verse 5, Nehemiah writes that, Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. Okay, there's an important word in the middle of that. An important word in the middle of that. It says to assemble. To assemble these people. He put it in my mind to assemble the nobles, to assemble the officials, and to assemble the people. To be registered. You see, this, this word, it's a fun word in, in the Hebrew. It's, it's the word, I'm going to butcher it, it's kvetz. Kvetz. And it's actually supposed to have a phlegm, but I'm not going to do that into a microphone. Um, so this kvetz. And it means to gather or to assemble. So it means it's, it's translated well. But see, the reason it's so important is because this word has roots in ancient Israel. Like back before Nehemiah's time. It has its roots actually back in Deuteronomy when Moses is giving the law. Okay, Now, the first, first four books, it's, they're, they're the book of the law. And then we have the fifth book, which is kind of a recap of the law. Okay, It literally means a second giving of the law. Okay, That's what Deuteronomy is. So here in Deuteronomy, as he's giving this law again, he uses this word in a very important way. This word kvetz, very important. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. It says, when all these things happen to you, the blessing and curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I am commanding you today, then he will restore your fortunes, he will have compassion on you, and gather or assemble, this word covets you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. See, and I I honestly believe that by using this word, by using this word here, as Nehemiah says, that God put it into his mind to assemble or gather, to covet the nobles and the officials and the people, he's saying God is once again gathering his people here. He's building his people. He's identifying his people. He's actually bringing this illusion back to Moses where he says, God will once again gather you. See, Nehemiah's focus up to this point, like I said, has been building the walls. But that wasn't God's purpose, was it? God's purpose wasn't solely about walls. It was about building his people, identifying his people, those who belonged to him. And as Nehemiah comes to this realization, he says, God put it into my mind to identify those who belong to the community. And he starts this genealogical search, right? Okay, does anybody in the room, like, serious show of hands, has anybody done any genealogy searches? Like, serious genealogy searches? Okay, so some of you have? All right, well, I'll just use the example I have, which is my mother. Um, My mom got really into doing genealogy searches, um, and she has traced my family lines way back. She has invested hundreds of hours, 
Um, she and my dad actually took a trip to go see cemeteries to see if they could track down where relatives were buried. They've driven hundreds of miles trying to find this. She's invested these hundreds of hours, and she has traced my family lines back as early as the 1400s so she can see where my family's come from. Um, whenever she was texting me, she actually clarified, and she said, actually, I traced one of our lines back to 900 AD or so, but I haven't found proper documentation to prove that. So um, she's done a lot of this, which in my mind is ridiculous. Like, that is a lot of time and a lot of energy. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, which was actually really funny because there's some Ebenezers in my background. And my wife, well, if we have a son, she won't let me name my kid Ebenezer. And I don't know why. So pressure's on now. Um, so some of you think that's funny. Some of you are like, that's a cool name. Yeah. Um, anyway, so... Um, the, <laughs> This was like the easiest genealogy search ever that he did, that Nehemiah does here. Because what Nehemiah does is he actually goes over to his buddy Ezra and he says, hey, I need the work that you did. And that's basically what we have quoted here. A lot of this work is is the work that Ezra had done in Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 70. It's like the whole chapter of Ezra 2. It's almost this exact list. So the way I picture this is, so those of you who have done um, genealogy searches, you've probably heard of Ancestry.com, right? And they talk about the little gold leaf. Well, this is like the gold leaf popped up and he clicked it and all this stuff just filled in, okay? The gaps were filled. It wasn't that hard for him. He just had to go to his buddy Ezra. So he sees all of this stuff pop in. But I started thinking about this. Why is this list here? Why is this list here? Okay. We believe in the Bible, and because we believe in the Bible, which this might be circular reasoning, you can talk to me about it later because I think there's other reasons to believe this, but we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it's profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. Right? We believe that. So why in the world, if we believe that this is ultimately, like God is the ultimate author of this book, God inspired this book. If we believe that, why in the world would God choose to include this list not once, but twice? Like, it's not just here once. It's over in Ezra, too. Now, there's some minor discrepancies, and we can talk about those later. But for the most part, this is word for word. Why in the world would God include this twice? Doesn't that seem, I mean, if I was just going to say, okay, God's going to include something that's pretty important, there's other stuff, like John 3.16 needs to be in there twice. I'm probably not picking Ezra 2. But God, in his infinite wisdom, said, you know what, this needs to be there not once, but twice. Why? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you why, what I think, which is kind of what happens every week, isn't it? So, um, here's, I think this teaches us a couple things. I think this teaches us a couple things. First, is that God's favorite method for accomplishing his work is people. God's favorite method for accomplishing his work is people. So he lists all of these people who he uses in his work. Just to show us, like, look at these tens of thousands of people I've chosen to use in the work of building my people and building my city. He could have done this anyway, right? I mean, just think about this for a minute. This is the God of the universe who commands legions of angels, who spoke the universe into existence. Couldn't God have sent those angels to rebuild this wall and have it done better and more efficiently? Sure he could have. I don't know if you know this, but he's God, so of course he could have. Of course he could have. But instead, he chooses to use broken and weak people to accomplish his goals. Why? Why in the world would he do that? 
Well, it's because it demonstrates that God can do incredible things through less than incredible vessels. God's showing his glory by using what's weak to do something amazing. God chooses to work through people over and over and over again. So whenever we say, you know what, God, we need you to reach this person, or God, we need you to accomplish this task, how often does God say, okay, go tell that person, or go get started on this task? See, God can do whatever he wants. If God wanted everybody in the world to be saved, he could write John 3.16 in the clouds, right? Of course he could. Of course he could do that. But instead he says, no, I'm going to send my people to accomplish my work. And I'm going to get all the glory for it. Yeah, isn't that awesome? God does amazing things. And I think it goes further than that. I think it's also because God loves us and he allows us to find joy in experiencing his power and his presence as we go and do the work that only he can do. Of course he loves us, so he wants us to experience that. So I think that's the first thing that it teaches us, that God's favorite method is to work through his people. Second thing I think it teaches us is how important it is to be counted amongst the community. How important it is to be counted amongst the community. Look, what this list is, is this was a confirmation that these people belonged. Like it was confirmation that they were a part of the kingdom, that they belonged to the the kingdom of Israel, right? Right? They belonged to this people. They were put on the rolls. You see, in a lot of ways, I think that's something that we need. Um, I talk about church membership because I think it's important. I don't think it's one of those secondary things that we can talk about maybe if we want to. No, I think church membership is incredibly important. Because it does a lot of things. One, it literally puts us on the rolls. And the church has a responsibility to come alongside us, to encourage us in our faith, to work with us. Church membership is not some some unimportant minor detail. Church membership is weighty. And we see here, these people are identified with the body. Names literally put on the rolls. And it gives us the opportunity both to, to have this kind of accountability, to have people come alongside us, to bear our burdens. And it also gives us the opportunity and the responsibility to serve. Membership essentially says, I belong to the people. I belong to God's people. And it literally puts our names on the roll. See, I think this is the Old Testament roots to church membership. Because notice, they counted to the person. Like, to the person. You look at the beginning of this list, you find this guy named Parash and his descendants, 2,170 some of them. I don't know because I accidentally cut it off the end of my page, but it comes down to the person. Or you get to Shephatiah's descendants, 372. Why doesn't that say 371? That's not a hard question. It's because there was 372 of them. To the person. Down to the one. They knew who belonged to the body and who hadn't committed to the body, who couldn't prove their genealogy. Today, what we need is people who identify with the body as people who will join the work of the church. And one of my favorite analogies for this is we need people who are willing to step in and say, I want to link arms with you and go and do the work that God has given us as a people, like as a group. God has given us this task. Let's link arms. Let's go do the work that God's given us. And as we do, you know what we get? We get to experience the power and presence of God in our lives. Oh, man, it's good stuff. Does anybody want to experience the power of God in your life? A few of you do. Good. Good. I do too. I think everybody, if they really thought about that question, the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. And these people say, I want to identify with the body and experience that in my life. 
See, Tom Rainer, um, who has written a number of books, wrote one called I Am a Church Member. And in this, um, in this book on church membership, he says, we can blame the lack of faith in, in my generation, the lack of faith in millennials. Um, he says, we can blame this lack of faith on the churches, the hypocritical members, the uncaring pastors. Lots of Christians are doing that. But I am proposing that we who are church members need to look in the mirror. I am suggesting that congregations across America are weak because many of us church members have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be be part of the body of Christ. We join our churches expecting others to serve us, to feed us, and care for us. We don't like the hypocrites in the church, but we fail to see our own hypocrisies. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. He placed us in the church to serve, to care for others, to pray for our leaders, to learn, to teach, to give, and in some cases die for the sake of the gospel. Y'all, that's powerful. That's weighty. In my opinion, what Rainer has caught on to here, and what I believe Nehemiah knew, is that identification with the body and in the body matters. It's not some secondary thing that we can do, well, if we feel like it. No. Why would you do that? One, it gives you an opportunity to serve. Two, it holds you accountable. Three, it gives you brothers and sisters who will bear your burdens and walk alongside you as you link arms and go do the work that God's given the church. Whew. So, as we prepare to build a people... We must establish godly leadership. We must identify with the body. Third, we must pursue biblical purity. And this one actually kind of goes hand in hand with the last part, but we're going to talk about biblical purity here. Still, using Ezra as the source, we get to verse 61, and it talks about the following are those who came from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Aden, and Emer, but were unable to prove that their ancestral families and their lineage were Israelites. Essentially, what it says is these people showed up, but they couldn't prove that they belonged to the body. Okay, and then he lists them. Verse 62, it says, Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, and Nakoda's descendants. And he says there's 642 of them. 642 people who claim they belong, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't show that they belong. Okay, verse 63. And from the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, and the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, who bore their name. They, these searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found, so they were disqualified. They were disqualified from the priesthood. See, belonging to the community for this people, it not only led to that responsibility we talked about just a minute ago of linking arms and doing the work of the church, it also led to privileges, didn't it? These people knew that if they were, they were not a part of the body, they were disqualified from certain privileges. And because they were not confirmed, they were disqualified from these. And the word in the CSB, this disqualified word, is the reason I chose to say that we need to pursue biblical purity. Because this word disqualified in the Hebrew, it literally means to be polluted or defiled. These people were defiled, so they were not included. These people were polluted, so they were not included. And a lack of purity prevents them from serving. This lack of, lack of purity prevents them from serving. All because they were not identified with the people. It, it disqualified them. I actually like the way the NIV and the ESV, they, they, they write this. It says they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They were excluded as unclean. These people, because of their lack of purity, were not able to participate in the service or the privileges, at least until God could rule on their status. They didn't have the privileges of being a part of the body. Why does this matter? Well, 
Because we need to make sure that our church membership is comprised of people who belong to Jesus. And that's why I say biblical purity. Because if we're trying to be pure apart from the saving work of Christ, we're going to fail. Like every time, not just sometimes, every time we will fail if we're trying to pursue purity apart from the saving work of Christ. Which means we're not going to be able to prove our lineage. We won't be able to prove that we belong to the right family line and we will be disqualified and excluded. The reason I say biblical purity is because by faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches that we become sons or daughters of the king. And then you know what you get to do? You get to say, okay, you want me to prove my lineage? I belong to Jesus. I can't get a much more direct line than that. Who's your father? My father is the God who created the universe. How much more direct do you want me to be? Like, you want me to trace it back to my dad? My dad's name is Ron. You want me to go back to my grandfather? His name is Lauren. You want me to go back to my great-grandfather? His name is Ira. I could go back further if you would want. My mom went back to 1400, so I could keep tracing if you would like, but you all don't care about my family line. Here's what you should care about. I belong to Jesus. You know what that means? That means my family records show that I belong to the kingdom. And because of that, I can put my name on a church roll. And because of that, I can link arms with my brothers and sisters, and I can have them hold me accountable, and I can have them encourage me. I can do the work with the church, and I get to experience that joy. That's what it means. So as we build people, we must establish godly leadership, identify the body, pursue biblical purity, and finally, we must participate in giving. We must participate in giving. Okay. I always love talking about money. Oh, I love it. Because it makes me feel like a TV evangelist. Uh, it's so good, right? I get to, like, I don't have shiny enough shoes, though, and my hair, well, it's too short, so I can't part it right. Um, so, anyway, it makes me feel like a TV evangelist. It's so good. Everybody loves it when the preacher talks about money, and some people are rolling their eyes. But if I'm being honest, um, I felt a little bit guilty as I came to this text today, uh, or this week, I guess, I, just so you all know, I don't prepare my sermons Sunday mornings. <laughs> They're written ahead of time. Um, <laughs> So, as I came to this text this week, and I started reading about, about giving, and I started thinking about giving, I actually felt a little bit of guilt, um, because I don't talk about giving enough. The Bible has a lot to say about joining the work, the work of the church through giving financially. And I haven't talked about it all that often. And I felt a little bit guilty about that. Something that the Bible speaks to this much, that I give very little time and attention to, that's a mistake on my end. Um, but see, the reason for that is because of all, the, all the, uh, the stereotypes about the preachers who love talking about putting more money in the plate. Um, just so you know, I talk about money because the Bible talks about money. So let me make that as clear as I can. And because of that, I do. I hope that you give financially. By the way, people, as soon as they hear money come up, instantly they like kind of draw back and they close in on themselves. They're like, you know what, you don't, you don't talk about my pocketbook. Uh-uh. Don't talk about my wallet. Because I want to do with that what I want to do with that. So I'm probably going to step on your toes this morning, and I don't really care because the Bible's going to step on your toes. Okay? So, here we go. I want you to give. I want you to give sacrificially. I want you to give joyfully because I believe it's an act of worship to God. I want you to give. Verse 70, it says, 
Some, not all, some of the family heads contributed to the project. The governor gave 1,000 gold coins, 50 bulls, 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family heads gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,200 silver minus to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minus, 67 priestly garments. The priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all of Israel settled in their towns. Nehemiah specifically notes that some, not all, but some of the people gave to this project intentionally notes that it was not everybody who participated in this. And then I find it humorous that he says the governor gave a thousand gold coins. You know why that's funny? You know who the governor is? Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah is the governor. And you know what? Throughout this book, he refers to I or me in the first person. And now he's saying, well, it was the governor who gave this. Um, I just think that that's a little bit funny. He's like, yeah, look how much the governor gave. Guess who the governor is? Yeah, it's Nehemiah. Um, I absolutely love that. And I think that he does that for a specific reason. Um, and, and this is just speculation. I don't know Nehemiah's heart. And I don't know his exact reasoning. And the Bible doesn't tell us, so maybe it doesn't matter. But I think it's because he wants to be humble. I don't think he wants to brag about what he did. I think he's just keeping a record of what happened. So he says, the governor gave this. The governor gave that. But note what the offering was for. Okay, now they specifically note that what the, what the heads, what some of the family heads gave was intended for, for the project, for the, the work that they were doing on the walls. They specifically note it was for the project, right? But tell me this, um, what, do gold bowl, what do these bowls and priestly garments have to do with building a wall? The simplest answer is nothing. Um, nothing. And you will notice that those same family heads who gave to this project... I don't believe, unless I just missed something, but I don't believe it says that they gave priestly garments or they gave bulls. It says that they gave money. They gave gold coins, silver minus. Now, those, I do believe, were for the work of the wall, for the project at hand. Just so you know, we have a project going on right now, and I'm going to solicit funds. Look at that. Um, this may seem kind of cheesy, but did you know that part of what you give goes to the work of building the building? It keeps the lights on. It goes towards the project out front. Whatever you give to the church, part of it goes to that. Absolutely. But what were these bowls and these priestly garments for? They were for worship at the temple. They were for the worship of God. The priestly garments, you know who wore priestly garments? This is not a trick question. Priests. Yeah. It was for priests. They would wear this whenever they served at the temple, whenever they received sacrifices, whenever they offered sacrifices on people's behalves. They would wear these priestly garments. And the bulls, they were used in that same service, in offering sacrifices. That's why these are listed here. A lot of these go towards the work of of worship, of, of coming together to serve God. And the reason I bring this up is because whenever you put money in the offering plate on a Sunday morning, whenever you give to Christian Fellowship Church, some of the money goes towards the work of the building. But a lot of the money goes to work of the kingdom, goes to spreading the kingdom, seeing God's people come, seeing people come to know Christ. That's what we want. That's what our desire is. Just to show you this, um, I, I, was, I was started wondering as I was thinking about this. I was thinking, okay, I wonder like, how much money do we really give towards missions? Um, like Specifically wanting to take the gospel to places it hasn't been yet. So I got on the phone, and I called our church treasurer up, and I said, you may or may not have this answer, so I'm just, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out for a sermon illustration. So um, roughly, roughly how much money do we give to missions each year? And he started talking about how much we send regularly, because we send monthly to some of our, our mission outlets that we support. Um, 
So he started giving me that. And as he started giving me that, and I said, okay, so tell me what, what percentage of our annual giving is this? Like, I want percentages because percentages make sense to me. You give me raw, raw numbers, like, it's, it's nothing. Like, okay, I don't know, is that good or bad? So I said, give me a percentage. And we came up with somewhere around 10% of our regular giving, like monthly giving, 10%. And some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't sound all that great. And I'm with you. Whenever I started thinking 10%, I thought, that's kind of sad, really. We're only giving 10% to missions? I, I would be a little embarrassed if that's all we did. Um, isn't that the point? Like, isn't that why we're here? Because we want people to know the saving grace of God? Like, we're not here just to support a building. We're here to advance the kingdom, right? So I said, okay, well, that's good. But see, then he said, oh, and by the way, that's not counting all of our special givings. Um, we have, just so you guys know, we have people who come periodically, missionaries who come or people who do different kinds of works, and we give specifically to them, like saying, we're going to use this fu- these monies that you give today to support this person, this ministry. And whenever we started calculating all of those, and he started throwing tens of thousands of dollars at me, we started counting up what kind of percentage we were at after we started counting in those special givings, and we were somewhere in the ballpark of 50% of all the money that's given to Christian Fellowship Church immediately turns around and goes to missions. That's something to be proud of. And you know what? I'll go one step further because as we were looking at what was given, we didn't even count things like money we spend on dots, money we spend on VBS, money we spend on the block party that we had up here. None of those things were counted in missions spending. Yet aren't those things designed to take the gospel to people in our community? Yes. So whenever we start thinking about that, you know why we turn the lights on on a Sunday morning? You all know? It's so that people come to know Christ and they grow in maturity. You know why we have a live stream most Sunday mornings? It's because, it's because we want people to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our goal is still to advance the kingdom. My hope is that nearly 100% of our budget goes towards advancing the kingdom. That's my hope, that's my prayer, and if we have things that don't go towards that, then maybe we ought to scratch those things. That's my opinion. Just so you know, if you're on our board, like that's, what, that's my thoughts right now. So, um, you know what, we're getting ready to do a construction project out here. But hopefully, even that is designed for the advancement of God's kingdom. And if it's not, then we need to rethink what we're doing. Because that's the purpose. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist. And the reason I bring all this up is because I want you to know that whenever you give to Christian Fellowship Church, whenever you put money in the offering plate, it's not just going to to provide fancier stuff so that way we can have it for an hour and a half a week. That's not the purpose. I mean, certainly, keeping up the building is part of it, but even that is intended for the glory of God. Evangelism, discipleship, seeing people grow in maturity. But whenever you give, it goes towards helping people like, um, uh, I don't know, let's talk, about, let's talk about Joel and FGCI. Some of you know For God's Glory International, For God's Children International. Sorry, I misspoke. It goes towards that. We send money to Joel so that he can go to Romania and he can help uh, orphans and gypsies and take the gospel to them. We get to help people like Bruce Paulus as he goes to Kenya to plant churches and dig wells. We get to help that. It goes towards helping teach high school students about biblical sexuality. What better things could you want to spend your money on? Like, it's not just so that we can have nicer stuff. And the list goes on and on and on, and I don't have time to get to all of them. My point is, I want you to give. I want you to give. Not just so that we can have a cool service on Sunday mornings. I hope we can do that. I hope that we can have a fun service on Sunday morning so we can get together and we can enjoy this time. I hope we can. But the truth is, we want to see people made into followers of Christ. 
and then grow in that maturity. That's what we want. That's what our heart's desire is. Both here in Mound City and Holt County and Atchison County and Nottoway County and what other, other counties are represented and then go like we can zoom out all the way around the world. That's what we want. That's what we want over and over again. And just so you know, um, my last thing I'm going to say about giving, well, that's a lie. I'm going to say more. Um, so one of the last things I'm going to say about giving is some of you are thinking, Jared, you don't understand how little I make. You don't understand how tight things are. I don't, I just, I know that's an excuse. Um, listen, I'm not trying to guilt you into giving. I'm just trying to tell you that you're missing out on a joy in giving. Like a real joy in worshiping God through giving financially. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus is speaking here, he said, and he's sitting across from the temple treasury, and he watches how the crowd dropped money in the treasury. And he says, many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The truth is she knew what it meant to fear God, to love God, and to serve him. Above everything else. She knew what it meant. And Jesus recognized that because she was willing to give whatever she had, knowing that it was going to go for the glory of God. That's challenging for me. Just so you all know, I've, I've had times in my life where my bank account was in the red. Um, and I know how, how scary that is. I know how, uh, how uncertain that makes you feel. I, I get it. Uh, I know that panic feeling whenever you say, how am I going to buy groceries this week? Um, I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of giving to the work of God's church. Um, if you want to know what that looks like, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm not a financial counselor in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, I don't even pay my own bills. My wife does that. So what do I know? But I would still love to talk to you about the blessing that you can have whenever you give to the work of the, of the church. Um, so as we prepare to build people, we must establish God's leadership, identify the body, pursue biblical purity, participate in giving. So what? Two things. One, are you identified with the body? Are you identified with the body? And I'm not just talking about showing up once a week and saying, you know what, yeah, I'm good, I'm here. Like, I, I, there, people know I come to church here. They know that I'm a part of this. I even serve sometimes. I'm talking about something bigger. Are you willing to say, yeah, I belong so much so that I want to put my name on the rolls? Are you that dedicated? Are you that committed to the work of the church? That you say, I want to put my name on the rolls. One thing that uh, we started talking about as elders that we're hopefully going to have beginning of the year, that's my, de- my own personal deadline, is uh, what I'm calling an exploration course. Um, and basically the idea is, say, what do we believe here at Christian Fellowship Church? What does it mean to be a member of this church? My goal is to have that available the first of the year. Um, so we're working towards that. But the reason I tell you that is not so that you'll wait till the first of the year to become a church member. It's to tell you, if you want to know what it means to be a member of Christian Fellowship Church or what we believe at Christian Fellowship Church, Come talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to some of our members who have been here for longer than I have. Like, talk to somebody about what it means. Because most of them can tell you. And those who can't will admit that they can't and turn you in the right direction. And if you're not that kind of a member, become that kind of member. Ha! Take that. So that's what I want. We're working towards that. I don't want you to wait till the first of the year to say, I'm so committed, I want to put my name on the roll. I would encourage you, don't wait to do that. Do that today. Um... If you're not identified with the local body, why not? Second thing I want to ask you is, are you participating in, 
in the church through the giving of your resources. Um, look, again, I don't know your individual circumstances, but what I do know is that you're missing out on a blessing if you're not giving. Um, you are. And why wouldn't we want to give of everything we have? I mean, if, if you're a believer, like if you say I've trusted in Jesus as my life, um, what you're saying is that Jesus gave everything for you whenever you gave nothing to him. Like he gave everything, everything for you. You were a sinner. You were destined for hell. You were doomed. You didn't have any hope. But Jesus gave everything for you. Laid it all out there for you. Didn't hold anything back. He came and he was poor. He gave up any kind of financial blessing he could have asked for. He laid down his life for you so that you could know the grace of God. Why wouldn't we want to give whenever he already gave us everything? That's what I have. I want to challenge you. If you're not a part of a local body, find one and put your name on the roll. Identify with that body. Join in. Link arms. Say, I'm committed. Do it. I, I don't know what you're waiting for. Second thing is I want to encourage you to participate through the giving of your resources. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I, I thank you so much for this challenge from your word. Um, Lord, I know I was challenged as I opened it and I read through it again and again this week. Um, Lord, I pray that we would pursue that kind of biblical purity that we see here. We would want to be a body that is comprised of believers who want to proclaim Christ. So, Father, help us. Lord, I, I, pray, I pray that we would clearly identify who belongs to the body. Um, Father, if that means that we need to be more clear about what we believe, Father, then help us to clarify that. Lord, if that means that, that we just need to get over our own obstacles, I pray that you would move us beyond those. God, but I pray that we would be so committed to your church, that we would be so committed to advancing the gospel. Lord, that it would mean that we would say, oh, I want to be counted as a part of the body. So Lord, help us to identify those who belong. Help us to maintain biblical purity. Lord, and I pray that you would convict us, um, myself included, that you would show us what it means to give of our resources both of our time, our energy, our efforts, but also our money. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be wise with that, to be good stewards of it, and then to give to the work of the church whatever it is that you would call us to give. Uh, Lord, so help us. I pray that you would challenge us and that you would let us be faithful with it. So Lord, I pray that our actions would be pleasing to you. Lord, move us to where we need to be. And Father, for those who are in this room today, um, or uh, Lord, those who, who hear, I, I pray that they would want to know you. Father, they would want to know this God who gave everything he had. Everything. Even though we didn't even know what to ask for. Lord, and I pray that they would submit their lives to you. Um, Father, for anyone who does not have a saving knowledge of who you are, Lord, I pray that you would draw them near, that you would open their eyes, and that they would turn and make be followers of Jesus. So Lord, save as only you can save. Help us to grow as only you can help us to grow. Father, just do the work that only you can do. And Lord, we look forward to seeing how it is that you move from here and being a part of that work. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.